Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Richard Haas, a year ago, his effort was my book of the summer, and that would be The World, A Brief Introduction. I really can't say enough about it being the required brief read to get you up to speed on the interdynamics uh, of the world economy. Ambassador Haas, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. What do you Thanks worry about after a 4th of July? What's the thing within the entire sphere of your work with the Council on Foreign Relations? Where's your reading? Where's your research where you're trying to figure something out? Tom, I could give you two answers. I could give you a very long list of international things that, that worries me. You, you mentioned Afghanistan. There's always China. <clears throat> People aren't talking about North Korea, yeah. but it hasn't gone away. There's Iran. But, but, but. The thing that worries me most is still us. What still worries me most is how divided this country is, how our democracy is under assault uh, from within. <clears throat> and that's what worries me. If we can't come together as a country, there's right. no way we will be able to act effectively on the world stage. You drove forward this discussion, it seems a lifetime ago, a world in disarray. So let's look at, after this 4th of July, an America in disarray. What do our institutions need to do to get us back on course in a better direction? Well, our institutions, some of them have performed pretty well when you think about it. Uh, the courts have performed admirably. Uh, the media, uh, for the most part, ha has fulfilled its its role. The real problem, I think, is is two things. One is Washington. Uh, we're still unable, for the most part, to come together to deal with some of the challenges facing this uh, country, even beyond infrastructure, things like uh, immigration uh, reform, dealing with budget issues, and so forth. And then at the state level, the the disparity in state levels of vaccination. Is, is a real statement, shall we say, about the federal system and the unevenness of how the United States is dealing with what is still the biggest challenge the country faces. Why can't we get more of a bipartisan push behind infrastructure? I mean, I know we have the $700 billion deal right now, but in an age of, you know, trillion-dollar stimulus and a country um, full of patriotic politicians, why don't we get... Uh, a bipartisan deal to give us an edge on our competition? Well, we may have a bipartisan deal. I think central to it will be a narrow definition of what constitutes infrastructure. If interest, you know, there's, there's no bipartisan support for, shall we call it, a, a broad definition of quote-unquote human uh, infrastructure. And then I think there's still questions of whatever scale legislation is passed is how you pay for it. And you're obviously going to have problems when it comes to specific tax increases. Is there ever a possibility that we get uh, someone uh, or a group, a big enough group that wants to clean out the loopholes, clean out the deductions and bring revenue higher with the, with the tax base where it is? Ever's a long time, but I don't see it. One of the rules of democracy, it's not what majorities care about. What, what, what drives a democracy are intense minorities. 
That's the reason, for example, you might have 90% of the country favoring background checks, but you can't get certain things on gun control because of the intensity of minority. And by and large, you have very intense minorities in favor of quote-unquote loopholes, and I think it makes it very hard, even though a majority of the country might be open to the sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah, Dr. Haas, I mean, we talk about the disarray here in the U.S., and of course, a lot of foreign nations look at that disarray and they see opportunity. We're continue to be uh, barraged by cyber attacks, uh, presumably uh, either uh, at the direction or at least with the sort of implicit, uh, I guess, backing of foreign governments here. You have the resurgence here of China across the world in areas where the U.S. used to be the dominant force here. How much does the White House and the policymakers here in the U.S. need to be concerned here about the influence or the lack of influence we may now have in some parts of the world? I think you have two areas. One is with uh, actual or would-be foes. The other is with allies. I think they've been more focused on trying to rebuild U.S. relations with our friends to reduce some of the uncertainty, some of the concerns there. But with the two countries you mentioned, uh, the, the administration has been focused uh, much more on China than on any other foreign policy uh, issue. Uh, they haven't quite put together a comprehensive or coherent uh, policy. With Russia, we're going to have a test. Uh, you had the meeting in Geneva. The president put down a marker about cyber. Russia continues to allow cyber uh, operations against us uh, that emanate from its, its territory. So the real question is, are we going to act on the norm that, like in the case of terrorism, governments are held accountable for terrorist actions that come from their territory? Are we going to act on the norm that governments are also going to be held accountable from cyber uh, actions that emanate from their territory? We're going yeah. to find out. Do you have confidence that there will be a diplomatic solution to this? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I may be a diplomat by training. Uh, I don't have a, a lot. Look, you're not going to get some Geneva Convention on how to regulate cyberspace. The real question is whether you can influence, say, the cost-benefit <clears throat> assessment of a Vladimir <clears throat> Putin. And that's the real issue. Ambassador Haas, a totally unfair question, but let's go there. It's Unfair Tuesday. Is there a Biden doctrine? His Secretary of State Blinken is a president. Have they delineated a distinction here that you see that you can call a Biden doctrine? No, I don't see a doctrine because a doctrine has a degree of uh, commonality and universality to it, Tom. What I'm, see Tom, what I'm seeing are certain impulses. Uh, a real one I mentioned already, which is an emphasis on rebuilding relations with uh, allies. Two, a surprising emphasis on the promotion of democracy, this, the idea of dividing the world between democracies and authoritarian <coughs> systems. Obviously, a fairly robust uh, rhetorical and other set of responses towards towards China. Uh, there's been a re-entry into multilateral organizations, mm -hmm. but again, these are all tendencies. I don't see anything that both explains what's going on and and predicts what will yeah. go on. What is so helpful here to have the gentleman of the Council on Foreign Relations with us is there can always be a headline that comes out that deserves perspective from Richard Haas. Here's a headline, Ambassador. China U.S. officials have phone call on Korean Peninsula issue. You led with this in our conversation uh, this morning. Have we been tested yet on Biden and North Korea or does that await? It awaits. It uh, hasn't happened. And there's been no what you call station identification from North Korea, <clears throat> right. which historically we've gotten from time to time. There's been some intriguing reports about real problems with COVID inside North Korea. So one has the sense from afar 
that they've got their, their hands full. But in the meantime, North Korea's nuclear capabilities and missile capabilities have steadily built up over the last decades. And I think the real question is, does the Biden administration try to start some type of what you might call an arms control conversation saying, look, we want to get rid of all your nuclear weapons and missiles. We know that's not going to happen anytime soon. Let's see if we can't slice this in a way or tranche this in a way where you get a, a, we get a bit of progress on what we want. And in exchange, you get a bit of progress on what you want, which is sanctions relief. We haven't seen that yet, Tom, but I think that's possible. Ambassador, I want to uh, ask about Berlin. I'm here. And of course, the elections are coming up in September. Does does uh, do any of the possible outcomes change the relationship between the West and Vladimir Putin? Because until now, we've been really unable to strike back at Russia or at least if we do strike back, we're still sending billions of euros through Nord Stream 2 pretty soon, straight to Moscow and straight to Putin's coffers. I think Nord Stream has gone so far that it's hard for me to imagine anyone walking it uh, completely back. No, I think the United States is going to have differences with pretty much whatever leadership emerges ultimately in Germany over both China and Russia. And in both cases, the, the German desire to have a, an economically-led diplomacy or foreign policy will probably outpace us. And I think that's going to be an inevitable area of, uh, of some friction. Ironically enough, it might be less between the U.S. and the Greens, because there the Biden administration might find more of an overlap stemming from both environmental issues and human rights issues. Ambassador Haas, thank you so much. Richard Haas, the force of the Council on Foreign Relations, their president. I can't say enough about the required read, The World, a brief introduction for all of us. Really just a lovely uh, primer, if you will, on the state of our international uh, relations. got the right guest at this moment. Christopher Grisanti of MAI Capital is a great student of the equity markets looking for value within growthiness. Now, Chris, do you own any of these Chinese companies? We don't, Tom. We, we think there's a lot of opportunity here that's that's just much simpler. And if I, if I were a Weibo shareholder, I would be afraid. It, I hate to use this analogy, but I think Hong Kong was frankly taken private several months ago. And it's, a, it's an issue of control. I think it's not data. It's about controlling the most important uh, political and corporate well, entities in the country. I think you and I are on the same page on this. Your job is to talk about it. My job is to ask the questions. I will. Right. We spoke to Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations in the last hour about an American disarray. Is this a Beijing, Chris Grisanti, and capitalistic or financial disarray? No. In fact, Tom, I think it's a, a Beijing that's exercising its uh, strength and it's uh, perhaps taking advantage of an America in disarray, but it's also exercising its strength in its own playground. So um, I would I would suspect we'll see more of that over the in the second half. Let's so, talk. Yeah, Chris, I am curious here about what the effect this could potentially have on American companies. There's been a, a lot of reports about uh, some of the issues Tesla is having with regards to its relationship with Chinese authorities. Obviously, uh, Apple and the iPhone basically wouldn't exist without its relationship with China here. Is there a point where uh, U.S. investors, uh, European investors need to start being worried about the ties that those that those uh, countries and those companies in those countries have with China? Yes, I'm only half joking when I say, yes, there's a point, and it was last year. I really think what this exhibits is a flexing of muscle 
much more overtly than we've seen in the past. But but clearly, I don't even think the Chinese have been trying to hide the ball. They want control over just about every financial transaction mm -hmm. and, and corporate move in the country. So I, I think it's a it's a tough place to do business as, as the major tech companies have been finding out. It is a tough place to do business. It's also a relatively lucrative place to do business uh, right. based on the size of the population and of course the growing wealth there. For a company like mm -hmm. Apple or any sort of big tech company that wants to have a presence there, how comfortable are you, Chris, as an investor in some of those US names uh, and being exposed to that Chinese market? Well, not terribly comfortable. I, I'd say what we do try to do is pick those that can survive. Facebook is a perfect example. Without it, even though, as you mentioned, it's such a terrific market that, that you know the rest of the world still dwarfs China by itself. So a Facebook, a Google have been doing pretty well without towing the line and, and, and basically having been mostly excluded from the marketplace. So, so we like that. Yeah, a number of those companies actually um, threatening to pull out of business in Hong Kong if they have to toe the line there. Is that a concern for you when you look at the um, international companies that you're invested in, how they do their business in China, how they manage that balancing act? Of course, it has to be a concern. And, and, and I'm a great admirer of Richard Haas's. And, and I think the black swan that we may be seeing over the next few years is a real kind of hot confrontation with China, and that very much worries me. So again, I would uh, it's an, it's on the negative side of a balance, those companies that have China as a large piece of the pie for revenues and profits. But more and more, that's got to be all of the big companies you're invested in. If I think of the big banks, if I think of the big cyclicals, the car makers, you know, the equipment makers, um, if I think of the big tech companies, they all have to do business in China. It's their biggest, fastest growing market. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't go quite that far, actually. I, I think Facebook is frankly excluded from China. Google is mostly excluded from China. And, and they're doing, you know, pretty darn well. So I, I, I'm not saying they can, obviously, they'd be able to grow a lot faster but, but they're doing okay as it is now. But having said that, we can't keep on going like this with you know a, a yeah. divided world of people who can and people who can't. So, so there's right. a resolution coming. I'm just not sure it's a happy resolution. Chris, we're not having the normal Christopher Grisanti interview, which is a good and beautiful thing. Thrilled to have you on with this breaking news out of China. But to bring it back to something you've been expert on and profited on, and that is Apple Computer. I believe, A, Apple has manufacturing facilities in China. I believe, B, Apple has a lot of revenue coming from China. Is Apple shares or your confidence in Apple shares affected by what China does with Chinese stocks? Now, how can they not be, Tom? But I would say even greater, we're not super positive on Apple as opposed to other alternatives in technology space, simply because at the end of the day, most of its profits still come from iPhones. So look, I, I love Apple, I love Tim Cook. It's just an expensive stock at over 30 times earnings when I can get a faster growing non-hardware stock like Facebook selling in the low 20s times earnings yeah. based on next year's earnings. And, and so I, I just think there's other better ways to play tech growth than Apple at this current time. Uh, we'll leave it there. Chris Cassanti, thank you so much on China, particularly this morning with MAI uh, Capital.
Benjamin Laidler joins us with eToro, their global market strategist, smartest guy on the block right now. Ben Laidler, reaffirm a double digit 2021. Yeah, definitely. I, I think we continue to underestimate the the growth recovery. I mean, we're going to go into second quarter earnings next week. Consensus says 65% year over year. That'll be the peak year over year, but I still think we're going to beat that. And, and, and I think the next earnings story is next year. Expectations for next year just look far too low, 12%, when you've got 7% nominal GDP growth. So I, I, I think there's still upside to this sort of growth story, you know, PMIs are still, you know, at 60, very, very high levels. Uh, so I think the growth story has, you know, has further to go. And, and that's your insurance policy to the biggest risk, which is out there, which is that valuations are still very high. They're going to come down, uh, probably as the Fed sort of gradually tightens here. But but I think that yeah. that sort of growth story is more than uh, going to offset the uh, uh, decline in valuation. So yes, I, I think there's, yeah. you know, you, you've, you've had a remarkable first half. Uh, you're going to make less money than that in, in the second half. But there's definitely a yeah. positive return uh, on the story here. And, and I think people uh, should stay invested. So, Ben, when we talk about the growth, obviously the economic growth here, a lot of people are starting now to sort of look at the idea that the pace of growth, earnings growth, I should say, and the pace of revenue growth for a lot of the companies, particularly here in the U.S., uh, are going to be enough to overcome any sort of concerns about the Fed, inflation, et cetera, et cetera, here. Are there certain pockets, though, of the market, certain industries that you think are going to be a little bit more resilient than others so you know if you're in the bullish sort of growth camp that, that i am you're looking for you know who gives me the most leverage and the most exposure to this growth story and that's 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 the cyclicals it's value it's financials it's everything that's pulled back in the last sort of month or so so i really think you're being given a sort of another opportunity here uh, to step up and buy those sort of pro-growth uh pro-growth names so you know u.s earnings next week overall will be probably up sort of 65% for the second quarter, but these cyclicals um, are going to be up, you know, over 100%. Uh, you look internationally, uh, you know, Europe, Canada, I mean, a lot of these other markets, which are sort of much more depressed, they're coming off much lower bases, you know, those overall indices are going to see, you know, 100% earnings growth rate. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm bullish on the sort of reopening story, you know, 25% of the world is vaccinated. So I think this reopening story is only just sort of beginning, and that's pushing growth with it. And I think the places to get exposure to that are these sort of cyclicals and, and international markets? You know, uh, our Javier Bloss laid out an argument for structural supply constraints in oil, pushing the price higher. Of course, we've also seen the OPEC saga do that as well. But do you see other areas where we have real structural shifts in terms of inflation? I notice you've got the German election and the COP26 summit on your docket of things to watch. Yeah, so I think what's going on in the oil space and just sort of more broadly, this sort of green transition, this move to sort of renewables is absolutely fascinating. You know, I think all the ingredients are there for, you know, for $100 oil. You've got this, you know, heavily backward-aided futures curve, which is not incentivizing anybody to, you know, drill for more oil. You've got, you know, you've got drink, uh, rig counts in the U.S., which are rebounded maybe half as much as you would have expected with sort of prices, you know, at these levels. So, you know, I think there's a real supply um, constraints are coming through, and that's going to drive, you know, that potentially drives oil prices up even further. And, and I should say the same goes for the broader commodity space. I mean, we're focusing a lot on the sort of demand rebound right now, but, you know, commodities have mm -hmm. been out of favor for a decade. That means that no one's been investing in the commodity space for a decade. So I think you have real supply uh, constraints. Um, I, but it's just worth saying, you know, particularly on oil, mm -hmm. you know, the higher prices go, those are the sort of seeds of 
it's sort of own destruction, if you like. I mean, ultimately, that will incentivize right. supply to come back to the market. That's going to incentivize, or even incentivize even more, the sort of move to renewables. Right. So, um, you know, enjoy it while it lasts. But, you know, ultimately, the market is going to adjust. Ben, you have been on a magical three-year tear. There's just no other way to describe it. You've got other people participating in the bull market, but nobody's nailed it like you. Are we overemphasizing the so-called rotation from technology to cyclical? Is that like emphasize too much versus just being in the market? I, I think so. I mean, I think cyclicals lead here because, you know, I think growth, the growth story has sort of sort of further to go. But I think uh, I, I, I mean, you need to be invested. I think, you know, the tech story is just a different story. It's slightly longer term. It's a bit more structural. Valuations are obviously sort of somewhat higher. Um, but these are, you know, the fortress balance sheets, you know, very strong growth. I mean, big tech last quarter grew earnings 120 percent. I mean, it's just mind blowing for companies that size coming off the year they'd already had mm. and i think it just speaks to sort of some of the uh, some of the earnings power so you know we can have a debate about yeah. you know what am i prepared to pay for these things but um i don't really have a problem with that with that sort of earnings power these margins these balance sheets you know more dividends more share buybacks i mean it's a different story less sort of juice to right. recovery we're seeing right now but it's it's still a very attractive story Ben Layler, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate you getting us started here uh, this morning with eToro Global Markets. Can't say enough about the sharpness of terseness of his morning note. Tom Purcelli joins some RBC Capital Markets today. Tom, I did a chart of the real Atlanta wage tracker. Inflation-adjusted wages are not there. Do you just presume that somehow we get inflation-adjusted wage growth, or is that going to be uh, something we cannot attain in the coming quarters and years? Well, I think that, well, first of all, good morning, and hope everyone had a good uh, holiday. Um, you know, I think it, 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 something like that is going to take more time than it otherwise would in the context of we have a lot of inflation right now. Um, that uh, the, the Fed keeps to, uh, likes to keep telling us is, is, is transitory. Um, so I think in, in, in the context of these uh, inflationary pressures, uh, I think it'll take time for that mm -hmm. idea to develop. But I think what we have to keep in mind is, you know, as we look at wage pressures, um, they're, 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 they're very present. Um, you know, they are starting to build. I think it'll take time for them to uh, um, push into uh, more of a positive territory uh, when, when you adjust for inflation. But, um, I, you know, no one can deny that, that, that we're moving in the right direction. I mean, Tom, you know how it is. Everyone wants everything so fast. Um, you know, this is uh, an idea yeah, that but, takes time. I mean, the, the ZEW over where Matt Miller is in Berlin, those expectations came in a little soggy. Is the, uh, the negative real wage enough to derail or I should say, get us to a 2% GDP sooner than we think. Yeah, so I think what we have to keep in mind, so there's a, so I love this question. So there's a couple it's of ways. It's my only good one today, go with it. <laughs> I, I think that there's a couple of, of, of ways of, of tackling this. So I think when I think about the recovery, I think of, I think of it in sort of a step function. Um, the, the first step in that function is, uh, you know, this sort of this mountain of saving that, that, that we're sitting on. Um, and I think that's going to be, you know, a, a, a critical ingredient to sort of, you know, let us see this 10% this, this or near 10% um, uh, um, growth rate uh, over, over the coming year. I think what's then going to happen is that at some point that's going to hand off to wage pressures, which we know are mounting now. 
And, and, and so, the, obviously, the step function there is you are going to see some slowing in economic activity. I mean, I, you know, I, it's funny. I think, again, people want it so simple. Yes, growth is going to slow, but you're going to slow from, you know, roughly 8% growth in the cu- coming year to, you know, roughly 4 or 5% growth next year, which is still, you know, meaningfully above um, potential growth. So that step function then, um, uh, going, from, going from wages, uh, excuse me, going from saving then to wages, we think from wages that the next step function is an interesting one. We think that that could then hand off to the, the banking system. Right, I mean, I think if you look at the loans to deposits ratio in the United States right now, it, it's collapsed, and it's collapsed for all the reasons that that you would, you know, sort of think, uh, or the reasons you would think uh, it would collapse uh, over the course of a pandemic. Um, and so, what's interesting is, at some point, that's not going to remain collapsed, right? At some point, there's going to be a, uh, um, you know, the banks will then step in, right? People will start knocking on the doors of banks right. once they depleted their savings, you know, once. You know, wage pressures start to stabilize and say, hey, you know, I, I'd like to make that loan. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's a few steps in the function that could actually uh, really sort of help us achieve, um, I, I think, really strong growth for, again, you know, north of potential growth for the next few years. But what if we do get to that stage or when we do get to that stage where folks come back knocking on the door, not only, of course, the individuals, but, of course, uh, with regards to commercial loans as well? If that happens yep. uh, with rates currently where they are here, what does that mean for the banks here? Yeah, so, I mean, look, I'm not going to get into the sort of the banking sector. I mean, that's, you know, for our, yeah. our, our great banking of folks to, to, to sort of deal with. But what I would say is, look, even for me, someone who's been talking about sort of more inflationary pressure than is appreciated, right, stickier inflationary pressure certainly than is appreciated, I still don't think that yields go that high. I mean, I, it's not like I'm looking for 10-year yields to sort of, you know, rocket higher from here. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think we'll be sort of lucky to be holding a two-handle on, on, on tens. Um, over the coming year, I think we'd be lucky for, for for that to happen. I mean, I just think there's too many factors at play. So I doesn't think that you tell you something about? Doesn't that tell you something, Tom, about how the market sees economic growth further out? No, Why? I don't. I I I, I think that I, I don't think it's I don't think it's quite that way. I think I think that there are a couple of very important ideas that are sort of weighing on the market. Which again, look, let's be clear: the market. We are all the market, right? I mean, we're we're all the people that are making these forecasts. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, whoever the quote-unquote market is, I don't think they know any more than any of the economists that, or, or, or any other analysts that are building views um, on, on, on the economic backdrop. So what I would say is, instead of some mysterious, hey, the market knows something more about the backdrop, you know, two or three years out, what I would say is this. I think there are a couple of key things that are weighing on the market, or, or not weighing on the market, that are, that, are, uh, that are stopping yields from really rising materially. Here, here's two of them. Mm. So the first is, I think, you know, we have to keep in mind that we obviously have, uh, you know, uh, countries and central banks that are still um, engaged in this, this negative rate experiment. Um, I, you know, that is obviously something that I, I think needs to be uh, entertaining. We still have bonds that are, you know, negative, yielding negative right now. If you FX adjust our 10-year yield yield, what you would actually see is that it's very enticing to um, – to Japanese investors in particular, and to European investors in particular. So I think that that's a factor, point one, that's weighing on 10-year yields. I think the other factor that's weighing on 10-year yields um, is, I think you have to keep in mind, where's the Fed going with funds? Right? Like, if you look at their long-run estimate of funds right now, it's only 2.5%. Think back to the last hiking cycle. The last hiking cycle, when the Fed got funds to 2.5%, what was their long-run estimate of funds then? It was 3%. So over the course of the last, you know, call it five or six years, Long-run estimate of funds has shifted from 3% down to where it is today, which is to say 2.5%. So if the Fed finished 50 basis points less relative to their long-run estimate during the last hiking cycle, 
I think that they're probably going to wind up, and again, not that that equation works always. I'm just simply saying, I think the Fed has done nothing but chop their long-run estimate of funds. I think that they're going to have a really hard time lifting rates materially north of, of 2%. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is yet another factor that, that sort of you know, is acting as a ceiling on tens. And, and the debate here, folks, is on the idea, can they do it in a linear fashion or is it a jump condition at some point? And we'll have to see how that works out. Mr. Purcelli, thank you so much. Tom Purcelli with RBC at Capital Markets. Douglas Cass is with Seabreeze Partners. Yes, his acclaimed morning note is, well, it's about more of the shorter term, but also he has the courage to go long. We'll talk about the go long in a minute. Uh, Doug, you are terse and decidedly cautious on the market. The phrase you use is group stink, and it's an institutional Wall Street that is positioned for good and better times. Are you worried about a correction? Or are you worried about a bear market? Or are you worried about the worse than that? I'm worried that no one else is worried about a substantial markdown in stock prices. I, I see a number of... I'm glad you didn't start with the New York Yankees, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I did. I was advised. My people talk to your people. And... Shockingly, they've made a total of 80 errors this year. That's four more errors than the number of hot dogs that Joey Chestnut consumed. <laughs> In the uh, Nathan's eating contest, yeah, good, acute analysis. Bring it together. But I'm not. Uh, I am. I have no intention of calling my next puppy Fenway. <laughs> okay, well, we're working on that. Uh, actually, on the Doug, Doug, we got no, no. We got to stay on this right now. This is oh, too. Oh no! Well, why did I start? Who do the Yankees trade to rebuild? Aaron Boone. Okay, that's the easy okay, one. That's, that's the, the manager. Easy one. That would work. But you really think it's a manager solution? I do think so. Yes. Okay. okay, well, that's a quick fix baseball then. talk? Yeah, that's good. I got 400 uh, emails. You know what the odds are, according up? to the bookmakers I checked it out because <laughs> I just made a bet. There are a 14% chance to make the postseason and less than one-half of 1% to win the World Series. That's good. That's good. Okay, let's anyway, get gloomier with your talk ramp. in the market. <laughs> let's talk about the market. The market ramp, uh, Tom and Paul, has been historic. Uh, the NASDAQ is now up seven straight weeks. It's strong this morning. Um, but my old pal and legendary technical analyst, Bob Farrell, once warned in his 10 Lessons of Investing that excesses in one direction will lead to an opposite excess in the other direction. There's another one of his rules I think that might be relevant. Um, it, was, it was Bob's belief that the public, and today that means the Reddit community and the Robin Hood crowds, buy the most at the top and the least at the bottom. Yeah, and we've certainly seen them, uh, you know, big time in the last uh, 12 months here, uh, 18 months. So, Doug, is the catalyst for a pullback, however you want to define a pullback, in your mind, what is that catalyst? Is it simply sure, the Fed? That's, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. Look, the, the, the biggest market player is the Federal Reserve uh, and the market players, the Federal Reserve and the central banks around the world. They've been providing... Um, equity heroin for the players since the COVID low. Uh, all you have to do, Paul, is draw a chart that plots the S&P index to the Fed's balance sheet. Yep. The two lines are right on top of each other. Yep. But the thing about drug dealers is that they never want the customers <laughs> to get clean. We've had several bubbles in the last three decades. Each bubble is growing larger and larger, larger than the one before. So one might ask, um, it, it, the Fed slashes rates lower and lower, <laughs> Rather than clearing the imbalances, which get bigger and bigger, 
Uh, with a drug like heroin, it takes more and more to induce the high. The problem is that it's taking more and more money and debt to have a marginal incremental impact on production and domestic growth. Um, I think in endorsing this sort of policy, we sow the seeds for problems, as debt is, at least historically, been a governor to growth. Um, we're finally seeing the adverse impact of unprecedented uh, monetary largesse in the form of rapidly rising inflation. It's being dismissed by the same people who dismissed the dot-com boom in, in 2000 and the slicing and dicing of derivatives that took down the global economy in 2007 and eight. The outcome is that the Fed is suppressing volatility. It's inflated asset prices, real estate, art. It's promoted speculation. It's taken, as you mentioned several segments ago, the real 10-year yield uh, to deep negative levels, serving to generally underprice risk. There appears to me to be a lot more uncertainty than many investors and traders see. Uh, I saw an amazing statistic um, that $580 billion has flown into global equity funds during the first half. Uh, if we annualize that yeah. and make it uh, a billion, a trillion, yeah. 50 million, that would result in more inflows in, 25, in, in 21 years yeah. uh, combined. Right. And I think that the 12 trillion of negative yielding yeah. debt has definitely helped. Yes. Talk, um, talk of the weekend, Bank of America, with that research, Paul. I thought yeah. he mentioned, when he mentioned $500 gazillion, yep. I thought that was Mookie Betts' contract with the Dodgers. <laughs> Dodgers Continue. Exactly. <laughs> but we are, seeing, we are seeing, you know, as it relates to the market shorter term, we're seeing divergences during the last seven weeks. Yep. The percentage of stocks over their uh, 40 and 200-day simple moving average has barely changed and is substantially lower <clears throat> right. than in January. <clears throat> and we have these... It, 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 these YOLO traders, not happy or satisfied making money in stocks, they yeah. have to move out ever further on the risk curve. And according to Goldman Sachs, listen to this stat, three of the top 15 call auction volume days on record going back to 1992, mm -hmm. and that's a total of 7,200 observations have happened since this year's Memorial Day. Well, it's a, a new market, and Gary Gensler is going to solve that uh, for us. Doug Cass, i got to go long-term here. I want you to reaffirm, you know, you're doing the short-term thing, and I get all that. That's your claim. But you have had the courage to say some of these technological juggernauts are five, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but they're literally decade-long holes. Do you stand right. by that this morning? Yeah, I think that uh, I've long stated, and you know that Amazon has been my favorite. It's up another $82. Uh, this morning, um, that several members, ex-Netflix of FANG, um, that would be Facebook, Amazon, and Google, uh, have deepening uh, moats, to paraphrase a term used by Warren and Charlie, um, and that the existential threat of um, antitrust really is being overstated. And I've said in the case of Amazon, and it's happened in the last two quarters, that their earnings growth um, will substantially exceed a group stink or consensus expectation, and that has occurred. Are they value stocks or are they growth stocks? Well, um, it depends when you buy the, buy them. Um, you know, if you bought them in December mm -hmm. 2018, they were when we did. It was they were clearly um, value stocks. <clears throat> the same could be said for March yeah. of. 2020. Uh, I don't think they're, 
you know, I know that a lot of people are making the case that they're value stocks yeah. because their um, PEs are less than their expected growth rates. Mm-hmm. So I think there's somewhere between value and growth. Doug, we got to shift back. And, you know, I'm so upset. I'm watching more National League ball this year than I've ever watched before because it's like real baseball. Doug Cass on the shift. Folks, for those of you that don't understand this, there's four players in the infield, and they move around <laughs> a little bit. But all of a sudden, where, you know, 20 years ago, it was like once a game, twice a game, they did it. Every single play, Doug Cass, they're doing some fancy pants stuff. And I'm sorry, the hitters are starting to figure this out. Are you for a rule that would contain the shift in baseball? No, I don't think. I don't. You know, you asked me last time with regard to the um, distance of the mound to home plate. No, yeah. I think you keep you, you keep you keep the rules as they are. They work well for over a century. Okay, yeah. Doug Kess, thank you so much. An update. Yeah, absolutely. You hit, you know, you hit them where they ain't. It's that's you, well, of, that's what they're doing. I mean, yeah. in the National League, where they know what to do with a bat because they're not all trying to hit homers. Yeah. Play after the Brewers are like a clinic. Play after play after yep, play. I watched them against the Mets. Yeah, they yeah. beat they beat uh, the shift as well. Have we done enough baseball talk this show? I think we have. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from seven to ten a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from six to nine a.m. for insight. From the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.